Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Extremes of cruelty and danger are combined in this war in Ukraine. We are examining them this hour with one guest who's got two specialties, the battlefield and the global banking system. Adam Tooz at Columbia University is both war historian and modern economist. Welcome, Adam Tooz, to our collaboration with the Quincy Institute in a radio podcast series we're calling In Search of Monsters. Your daily newsletter on this war, Adam, called Chartbook, is required reading by now. You're covering the force of banks against tanks, so to speak. The money piece is a theater of warfare that we're not used to seeing in real time. You make it seem potentially decisive. Those sanctions that disrupt Russian banking, the freezing of Russian assets abroad, all that on top of the heroic rising of the Ukrainian people. Those Molotov cocktails and street defenders of Kiev could turn the tide. Why didn't they think of banks to stop tanks before? as an alternative to joining the battle on the ground. We had thought of it before. That was always the plan. The unexpected part here is the heroic resistance by the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian military, the Ukrainian government. That's the unexpected bit. The plan was that we expected the Russians would roll over the Ukrainian defences, do it quickly, and then in retrospect we would deliver punishment in the form of sanctions. And I think to the consternation, to a degree, of the political class and the leadership on both sides of the Atlantic, we actually find ourselves in a very difficult, different situation, which has unleashed a whole bunch of other dynamics now, because for obvious reasons, there's a huge democratic enthusiasm across Western Europe in particular, vast demonstrations, 700,000 people plus in Berlin at the weekend, in favour of the Ukrainian resistance. And then on top of that, the already planned, anticipated sanctions. I think the sanctions were calibrated in the minds of the EU and the Biden administration, depending on how severe Russia's infraction of international law was going to be. But since it has been complete, and this is a full-scale invasion, an open war, I think it was always, in a sense, expected that they would ramp up quickly. But now we're actually in a situation in which there is a war which is undecided. The Russians haven't won as quickly as people anticipated. And so the sanctions are not retrospective punishment as they were of Russia after its annexation of Crimea, but, as it were, intruding into the war itself. I remain very sceptical as to whether they will swing the outcome. But certainly it creates a a powerful, extraordinarily dramatic dynamic between the battlefield and the events in financial markets and in the main centres of Russia. It feels like a major turn. This decision to go hard on the economic sanctions in hope of breaking Vladimir Putin. Well, to be honest, I think this has been America's declared intention all along. I mean, I think you can't fault the Biden administration for not having been incredibly explicit about what they were planning to do. There are not going to be American boots on the ground. No American blood is going to be shed. Apart from anything else, it would be far too dangerous. I mean, we do have to remember that Russia is a legitimate heir to the Soviet Union and just contemplate the possibility of the kind of clash that we're seeing right now with the Soviet Union in the 1980s, for instance. I mean, it's mm. it's absolutely horrifying and it's spectacularly dangerous. Even the extent of the engagement that we already have is spectacularly dangerous. But the technology that we're using, the sanctions technology that we're using, 
is essentially the sorts of techniques that the US Treasury and the American agencies developed in dealing with Iran. Of course, the difference is that Iran doesn't have nuclear weapons. That's the entire point. And what we're doing is applying mm. them to Russia, which does have a huge nuclear arsenal, in the middle of an open war, which it is not obvious that the Russians are going to win on the terms that they expected to win it. And all of these measures, I am convinced, were not in fact intended to do this. They were intended to retrospectively sanction and, as it were, salve the feelings of righteous indignation that the West was going to feel after Russia had conducted mm. a coup, basically, and seized Ukraine. And then, as it were, we were going to kind of reconcile ourselves to that situation by punishing Russia. Instead, what we are now doing is actively contributing sanctions as a form of warfare in a war that's unresolved. And it's a very dramatic departure. And when combined with the escalating arms deliveries to Ukraine by the West, which has involved a series of taboo breaks on the Western side, Sweden, Germany involved in delivering, you know, a lethal weapons to a war zone, it's an extraordinarily explosive shift of the parameters. What are the possible counters from Putin, including nukes, of course, although I can't imagine where he's going to bomb or how he would use these essentially unusable weapons. But I'm also thinking, you know, is there a crypto solution to his money problems? Does he have alternative sources of money when his overseas assets are frozen? Not on the scale that's necessary to run a large modern economy like the Russian one. I mean, possibly on the scale necessary to cushion, you know, the oligarchic elite. One assumes, in fact, it's obvious that the Russian oligarchs have already squirreled away. Well, I think I've seen one estimate to the level of almost a trillion dollars. The oligarchs, including Putin himself, of course. Yeah, no doubt. You know, he's coy about his personal wealth. No doubt he is a very wealthy man. But I mean, from his point of view... I mean, if he wants to use somebody's house or drive a car, whatever he wants to do in Russia, you know, he just simply has to ask. And he may not even need to ask. He may just need to wink. So, yes, at that level, it's quite possible that there are assets which they can protect and are sufficiently secretive not to be touched by the sanctions which are now being rolled out. But no, you can't run a highly sophisticated economy like the Russian one on that basis. They may be able to organise... Uh, various types of barter deal. I mean, like the sort of thing that Iran has had to do since sanctions were imposed on Iran. You'd have to find willing partners and they would exact a price for engaging in those kind of deals in the same way as, you know, illegal money is traded at a discount in the same way as like, you know, if you steal a very important painting, you can't then go and realise top dollar at Sotheby's. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so whoever you sell it to gets it at a discount because they won't be able to show it to everyone. So um, the same will be true for this kind of deal. And that may see them through. But even, you know, Iran sanctions were, by all accounts, about as effective as the US Treasury could make them. And they included secondary sanctions against third countries that were involved in attempting to trade with Iran. And they didn't crash the Iranian economy. They stunted it. They cut it by maybe 7 or 8% on impact. And then the Iranian economy adjusts around them. They cause financial panic, as we're seeing in Russia today. They may cripple the banking system. They'll cripple international trade, obviously. But big, sophisticated societies like this will find ways of carrying on. I mean, imports account for 20% of Russian GDP, exports for 28%. And that's coming out of a sector that is a, it's like an enclave economy, right? They're basically sort of lily pad fossil fuel producers. So the rest of the Russian economy will continue on to a degree for a while in constrained circumstances. I keep wondering, Adam Tews, who wrote the rules of economic warfare? Does Vladimir Putin know the rules? I mean, he can bluff the role of a general. Can he bluff the role of a banker at war? Who are these people? And do they know each other? 
Is there a War College of Finance? No, but there is right now a kind of an ongoing seminar around the American government. And there's people in and out of government who have been applying these tools of sanctions on the US part from really the original legislation that permitted this kind of action came out of the oil crisis of the 1970s and the Cold War of the 1970s. But it's really the current generation have cut their teeth on Venezuela, on North Korea and on um, Iran. And so in the US, there is considerable expertise. And these people know their way around the plumbing of the global financial system. They know where to strike, where not to strike. There is always a balance to be struck between hurting the country that you're intending to hurt and destabilizing global energy markets, for instance, which is not in America's interest. It wasn't in 2014, which is why some of the sanctions on Russia then were quite easy. The situation is even more delicate today. And we're still getting the details on this. Basically, the presumption is there are carve-outs for Russian oil and gas. But exactly how those are going to be structured, how they're going to work, the market participants are figuring out. On the Russian side, they've been living under one or other type of sanctions since 2014. They have very high levels of expertise, one can imagine, in managing these things. Their financial experts, their financial administration since the early Putin years has, you know, an unmatched record of expertise, to be honest. You know, they used to be the toast of conservative global finance because they ran Hmm. very tight ship government surpluses. They are not your typical petrostate. We're not talking about a Nigeria or an Angola or Libya here. We're talking about a regime that hasn't obviously monopolized all of the profits of fossil fuel for the state, but has struck a bargain with the oligarchs, which mean that the vast majority of the profits go into the state coffers. And they can do, I mean, with the regime's capacities, they can do internal counterbalancing, for instance. They can do offsets for hard-pressed Russian consumers, which the American state machine, as we saw in 2020, struggles to deliver, right? I mean, they have much greater capacity at that level than we would take for granted. So in terms of brokering the internal domestic bargain, the Putin regime has quite a lot of instruments. There was a huge surge in inequality in Russia in the 1990s, in the go-go days of Yeltsin. But inequality has broadly stabilised since the early 2000s at a radically high level. And with these extreme, you know, with the 30-odd billionaires that they've got at the very top, But for the Russian middle class, until at least the shock of 14, things considerably improved. I mean, I think the big question to ask is how resilient is that middle class group, which is traditionally the bastion of support for Putin, the people whose lives were totally transformed from the chaos of the 90s to the relative stability of the present. Aren't we also wondering about the loyalty of the oligarchs? Michael Fridman, described as one of Russia's richest men, made tantalizing news last weekend He said, I don't make political statements. I'm a businessman. I am convinced, however, that war can never be the answer. I mean, what kind of a crack is that? I mean, it is a crack, there's no doubt. The deal with the current generation of oligarchs is that they don't say things like that. So I wonder what his prospects are, what his exit plan is. You know, that was a a brave thing to say from his point of view, minimal as it was. I mean, I'm by no means a criminologist, but the people who are give us a very interesting picture of what's happened, which is that there was the first generation, the 90s oligarchs, who really were calling the shots. They were like the overmighty barons in a badly run medieval regime with Yeltsin. And then what we see with Putin is really the shift from a full on crony capitalist situation to one which is much really properly characterized as a state capitalist solution. So with Khodorovsky in 2003, they took down the biggest oil baron incarcerated him for 10 years and made clear who was in charge. 
And the situation now increasingly is one in which the people who run the show are the men of force, right? The people that come out of the security policy establishment. And the deal is really the oligarchs, classically, the business people, can get rich and enjoy the lifestyle that goes with that and have influence in technical areas like, you know, decision making over technology to do with gas or whatever or banking, but have no voice in foreign policy. That inner core of military, security and sort of state industrialist, Sechin is generally speaking to be considered the most dangerous man of that group who has just fought an all-out war for control of the oil sector, which is the real prize. It isn't really gas, right? Russia earns most of its money through oil exports, not gas. So they are the people who call the shots and so far we've not seen any of them break ranks. Coming up, the play of new money in the new Russia. Most of it's frozen now in foreign banks. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source with Adam Tooze, the historian who knows economics. His specialty is the web of money behind warfare, from J.P. Morgan's hand in World War I to the banking sanctions against Russia since it invaded Ukraine. Adam Tooze, let's talk about this matter of Russian hot money since the Cold War, the sort of kleptocratic era in capitalism, which feels like a multiple scandal to me. First, that they took the money from the people's resources, the people's property in Russia to begin with in the old Soviet Union. It was public property. But furthermore, the Western indulgence of these characters and this flood of money that has changed London, especially New York to maybe a lesser extent. But it's a phenomenon that we civilians don't much understand. And I wonder if it's going to be addressed. A wonderful commenter on your website writes that we've come to a point where there's no longer an appetite for tolerating Putin and his Mm. criminal gang. This is in the financial world. Putting it in simple terms, We're taking ourselves out of the business of facilitating Putin's ambitions and not coincidentally trafficking in stolen wealth. He writes, this will be hard because banks make their numbers by turning a blind eye to what's going on under their noses. That's you, Deutsche Bank, I'm referring to. I mean, we read about these things very occasionally, Donald Trump's relations with the Deutsche Bank or the Russian investment in his real estate all along. But what are you learning here? about world finance, and it would seem conspiracy of Western banking in the post-Cold War games. What it clearly reveals is that, as it were, there are three types of logic involved in banking. One is, as it were, the mobilization of the savings and you know, salary checks of regular working folks. And then there is the go-go, technologically sophisticated, financial engineering, derivatives-based stuff, which is highly leveraged and highly risky and too big to fail, but legal, thoroughly legal. And then there is another world of very large-scale private fortunes, some of which are derived from completely legal activity, and many of which are derived from activities which are far more borderline and grey zone, all of which, however, constitute almost irresistible pots of wealth from the point of view of particular types of banking, right? It's not all types of banking, all types of investment. If you're running a big fixed income fund, you don't necessarily have to be worried about these kind of people, right? It's the difference between BlackRock, which manages everyone's pensions funds, and Blackstone, which is doing private equity deals for super rich people. And those are two very different worlds. And in that latter world of the private finance world of very large individual fortunes, the Russians show up in the 90s and continuously ever since then as free spending, 
no questions asked, highly desirable clients. And so, you know, an entity like Credit Suisse, for instance, which is all about after 2008 coming back from its disastrous entanglement in American mortgages, it goes to the supposedly safer domain of wealth management, which is all about finding these extremely high net worth individuals and managing their personal finances. And it apparently set up an entire like derivatives business, which consisted of using people's super yachts as collateral. <laughs> um, and then you market these off, right, as high risk assets. And we know perfectly well what kind of people were in there, because when the first wave of sanctions were imposed after Ukraine and Crimea, like a huge slice of these loans, like some significant fraction defaulted. Because it was people who basically lost access to that. So they know. I mean, on their radar screens, it must be showing up as this is toxic, dangerous money. But if you're in the wealth management business, this is what you have to go after. These people, they live in a world of deliberate obfuscation of moral boundaries. They're not interested in the precautionary principle of do no harm. That's not their principle. Their principle is where do I get the money? Money is good. I'm going after the money. And so there's an entire network, both onshore and offshore in places and, you know, as close as Delaware on the one hand or in more exotic locations like the Cayman Islands, but also in London or in the Channel Islands, financial centres or in Switzerland where Cyprus, Malta, you know, they're, they're all over ten a penny. And you can go to a Pacific island and buy nationality there and obtain a virtually uncrackable bank account that cater to this money. Most of us hear about the Cayman Islands or yachts here and there, but know nothing. Paul Krugman knows something about it, though, and he thinks it's a scandal both on the Russians' part, but also on ours, this deregulation of capitalism in the Cold War. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you an incredible story about this. So, Yeah, please. During the um, one of the recent presidential elections, I think it was the Romney-Obama presidential election, the, the Guardian ran a piece about tax havens and the status of tax havens. And Obama had announced that, uh, you know, he was interested in cracking down on these until somebody started looking into like the financial structures that were sitting around the Clinton and Obama financial apparatuses and discovered that they all, of course, had, you know, letterbox addresses in either Delaware or the Cayman Islands. And then somebody pointed out that the Guardian itself, the Guardian newspaper also had a structure (laughs) like this. And then I, who was writing for Pearson at the time, thought about incorporating this into the footnotes of my book, Crashed, and thought I should dig in a little bit to see whether Penguin, through the financial structures that it's owned by, doesn't. And of course, it does too. Like, you know, absolutely everyone in that chain had some flag of convenience letterbox corporate address to protect their financial structures. Because if this structure is available, if there is a tax-efficient or, you know, anonymity providing vehicle available that gives you some minor edge in the business of wealth preservation and wealth building. You know, as a professional wealth manager, it's your fiduciary obligation to take advantage of that. I mean, you are failing your clients if you don't. And so, you know, there's an entire chain of advisory networks that focus on. And so if you build a barn door as large as Delaware for New York finance to go through, it kind of can't resist it. I mean, you end up looking like an idiot if you don't go through it, and no professional money manager can afford to look like an idiot. I want to say for the record that open source has no overseas assets in the Cayman Islands or any place else. No, no, forget overseas. How about Delaware or one of these other ones closer to home? No way. The point is only we know that this has a lot to do, even if we don't understand it, a lot to do with the corrupt financialization of American politics, everything to do with Donald Trump's real estate before he 
ran for president and maybe since, um, this kleptocratic variation of advanced capitalism. Paul Krugman wrote, and it was news to me last week, the hidden foreign wealth of rich Russians amounted to around 85% of Russia's GDP. That's a lot of value. And he says there are mm -hmm. two uncomfortable facts here. First, a number of influential people, as you say, about the Obama and Clinton and Guardian worlds, both in business and in politics, they're deeply enmeshed with Russian kleptocrats. Oh, no, no, no. I did not say any such thing. <laughs> no, I said they're enmeshed in a world of corporate legal structures that those other people also avail themselves of. But legal only means that some politicians wrote a law that exempts those players. Well, I have to break it to you, but that's the nature of all laws. Some politicians write them. Like, that's all there is to it. Like, so sometimes they write good ones and sometimes they write what seem to us like really bad ones. But we don't have any other way of making law. We know that the sea of money has something, probably everything to do with the corruption of American politics, the disbelief in American politics, the belief that somewhere there are people in the Cayman Islands or money in the Cayman Islands that are taking our votes away. Krugman leaves it up in the air. What in the world is to be done about it? Do you have a notion? The first thing to say is that this wasn't created by the Russians or for the Russians, right? This was exactly. entirely homegrown and the Russians just discover this absolutely marvellous world. You know, it turns out they're incredibly welcoming. And once they get going, of course the amounts of money they're funneling out do help to create entire financial centres, like Cyprus, for instance, in the Mediterranean. I mean, they don't go as far as the Cayman Islands. Cayman Islands comes out of the British Empire as a tax you know, haven structure. But Cyprus and Malta are more recent creations of this, you know, because it's very convenient for them from Russia flying to Cyprus. So the problem, of course, is that it's chicken and egg in that it is the existing power structure that creates and perpetuates and continuously amplifies and reinvents these structures. And so ultimately, the only conceivable answer is political. Political in the widest sense of the world. So starting with right. clarity and lack of obfuscation about what's actually going on. Let's be completely clear about who is doing what to whom as far as possible, because that stirs people up. Then various types of what used to be called extra-parliamentary organisations. So citizens' rights groups monitoring groups, protest groups of all kinds. And then, of course, finally, electoral politics, because we have to elect representatives who are serious and are willing to take the risks involved, because this is a fight, to address this kind of thing. And, you know, in, in its ultimately conformist final distillate, something like Janet Yellen's global corporate tax agenda emerges from this, which is not very much and doesn't add up to a transformative set of policies, but it is responsive to this clamour of public opinion, which now for more than a decade has been saying it's completely unacceptable, really, that the big global corporate firms, many of which happen to be American and many of which are in big tech, take advantage or are allowed to take advantage of the sort of structures which exist in, you know, otherwise model European polities like the Netherlands and the Republic of Ireland. You know, both are places where one would be proud to have the passport, one would feel incredibly lucky to be born there. And yet their relatively small economies depend crucially and have for a long time depended crucially on arbitraging these kind of things. They're superior upscale tax havens, essentially, yeah, operating inside the EU, which is, again, generally reputed to be the most socially conscious, effective welfare state in the world. And it is. But it contains these loopholes, these wormholes, which take you into a completely different realm, which a company like 
Apple, for instance, is, in a sense, legally obliged to seek out and take advantage of, because otherwise it just wouldn't be doing as well as it could by its shareholders. So that, I think, is the chain, right? It involves, as it were, publicity, mobilisation, electoral politics, legislation, global organisation. It's very demanding. The results are very likely to be disappointing, but that is the way to push this. And it has a history, right? Corporate tax rates, for instance, plunged in the 1990s. So this isn't set in stone. It's not unalterable. It's not always been like this. There are ways in which one can change it, but it's a huge and complex fight. And you're up against highly sophisticated operators with everything to lose. Well, not everything, but a huge amount of skin in the game. Mm. Adam Tews, connect this financialization of politics, but of this war, with oil and energy and the petrostate that Putin presides over. I mean, among other things, it's not all, but the carve-outs in the sanctions for the oil industry, you're reminded that the oil problem is still going to be with us, and the environmental movement in all of this seems to have been forgotten. We may never catch up with the idea of regulating our CO2 emissions. I mean, what does it matter that the basic pool of all this finance is oil and energy? In Europe, I have to say the opposite is the case. I mean, like there is a fire hose of debate going on in Europe right now about how renewables is fundamentally the answer to the problem that we're in. I don't think anything is ever going to make the case as compellingly as this current crisis. And Europe has, after all, been living through an energy crisis now for the best part of nine months. We had the liberal pro-British business German minister of finance, who I've been incredibly critical of, going to the German parliament and criticising his conservative colleagues. He is in government and declaring, literally, renewable energy is freedom energy. <laughs> right. That, that mm. argument in Europe is done now. That, that doesn't mean, because Europe is a complex polity with lots of political economy and interest will push back, but the ship has sailed for fossil fuels, I think, as far as Europe is concerned at this point. Germany has now said its entire electricity system will be carbon neutral by 2035. So we're talking about a 12-year, 13-year transition for Germany, the largest energy user in Europe. So, no, America is a completely different ballgame. I totally agree. We have the president on the rostrum saying this is not going to affect your gas prices, dear citizens. That is not the line that's coming out of Europe. So there is a dividing here between Europe and the United States, which is familiar, but now getting really quite pronounced. But the issue is, you're, you're absolutely right. It's like, you know, oil and gas create oligarchic wealth. They're highly centralized form of wealth. There's never really been, except in the very early stages of wildcatting, and that was sort of petty bourgeois oil and gas. But, and that is the fantasy, after all, of fracking, right? We read of a fracking boom ahead in this country, tearing up our landscape and then converting that to energy that'll keep Germany warm forever, among other things, blocking Putin and Russian oil and his pipeline into Europe. I mean, don't bet on it. Don't bet. Seriously, do you want to lose money? That's something to invest in. Don't bet on it. You don't believe in the, in the fracking, but I no. pray you're right. No, I mean, the Germans are going to build themselves some LNG terminals because Europe doesn't have enough pipeline capacity and it's easier to build the LNG terminals than it is to pipe the gas from the LNG terminals Europe already has. But A, Europe doesn't like America's frack gas because it's so methane polluted, right? America has this appalling record of methane emissions around fracking, which is an embarrassment to the United States. It's an embarrassment to the Biden administration. France doesn't really want America's LNG. They'll take it in absolute extremists but the move here, and we should be really, I think it's, it's very unambiguous, is towards temporary use of gas, sure, because there's no alternative in the short run. Cutting out coal entirely is the top priority. 
But then, you know, we should take this totally seriously. I mean, when the Germans declare these kind of things, they have a way of meaning them. Net zero by 2035 for electricity generation in Germany. You know so much more than I do about this, but, and I hope you're right. At the same time, people in this country write about the easy alternative to Russian oil and the Nord Stream Mm -hmm. pipeline is to send Europe our fracking energy. Yeah, and Europe's been gulping it down every bit it could get this last year, for sure. So it's not entirely mythological. No, it isn't. It's just not a good thing to gamble future expectations on. And it is not the way in which Europeans are reading the current crisis. So we're in a weird transitional phase. And it is definitely, you're completely right. I mean, you know, it is an era of like making New Year's resolutions, if you like, new decade resolutions. And Europe is making a whole bunch of new decade resolutions, which is to get fossil fuel consumption down dramatically by the early 2030s. That's the new resolution. Fit for 55 is the 2030 commitment, right? So you can disbelieve that. And history would, in some senses, be on your side because these are bold commitments. But if you want to understand, as it were, where European political mindset is at right now, it is definitely not retreating to that position. And fracking, America's fracking, has terrible brand values. If you can liquefy it and package it and sell it as LNG, you know, that's the way to go. But the idea that it comes from some dirty American fracking rig is horrifying. And I wouldn't expect it to really work longer term. I mean, fracking is cheap. You know, you can do it quite quickly. You can run it up, run it down. But the liquefaction terminals are not. And so that's where America could think, find itself. It'll find other consumers. Asia's going to need LNG. The developing world's going to need LNG for some time. But I wouldn't be counting on Europe as the main market. I devoutly hope you're right. Yeah, no, seriously, it is a matter of hope. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Tooze, I met you, so to speak, in your marvelous book called Deluge about World War I, almost exactly a century now. World War I was Woodrow Wilson's entry into global politics. We've been on top of the game ever since, ups and downs. But here we are in 2022. How do you define it? Is it the end of the game? Is it a renewal of the Cold War? What is the new world order being born in this Ukraine war? I think it's a new game. It's not the old game. And America is still a big player in the new game. And America is, for the foreseeable future, always going to be a big player. So stories about American decline should never be taken as being ones in which America disappears from the scene. It's a relative decline, relative, generally speaking, to the benchmark of not so much World War I as World War II, right? I mean, the Marshall Plan moment is, as it were, the epic high point of American global hegemonic competence and capacity and relative power. And relative to that, we're in a new game in which the world is much more multipolar, And America is learning to play in that game. And I would submit that it really began that under the Obama administration, which is quite frank about it, to be honest. And in the Ukraine, unfortunately, we are dealing with one of the real legacies, the last gasp legacies of the unipolar moment at its most hubristic, which is that accursed NATO conference in Bucharest, Romania, in the spring of 2008, in which the Bush administration, in its dying months decided to bounce NATO against the resistance of the German and French into making an open-ended commitment to Georgia and Ukraine that they would become members of NATO. Coming up, the tipping point for our great republic. Was it 2008 in Bucharest? This is Open Source.
The economist and historian Adam Tooze is marking a critical turn for the U.S. in the second Bush presidency in Bucharest, 2008. This was the overreach of the post-Cold War era. Explain yeah. that. I'm, I missed Bucharest, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, it's the, it's the maximum moment. So, you know, in the 90s, de facto, I think, America's position was at its absolute strongest because Russia was really, you know, in crisis and China was not yet really achieved the kind of economic momentum that it was to achieve in the early 2000s and the levels of economic prosperity that it has sustained in the last 10 years. So America at that moment was really in its highest point. But what we see in the 2000s is obviously 9-11, the, the crises of American power in Afghanistan and in Iraq, which at that point, you know, we're really in the kind of civil war phase in Iraq. And nevertheless, the Bush administration feels that the front to push on is NATO expansion in Eastern Europe. And they want to shift the balance of power, I think, within NATO. They've been having much better relations over Iraq, notably with the Poles. Remember Donald Rumsfeld talking about the new Europe and the old Europe. Germany and France were the old Europe, so let's bring some new European members in. And even though Putin at the Munich Security Conference in February 2007 had laid down the law, specified his red line, said this far and no further, already this is far too much, 12 months later, there is this push, and it hugely divided the Bush administration. If you speak to people around Condoleezza Rice, like, it's quite clear it was hugely controversial, and even more so with the European partners in NATO. And nevertheless, Bush prevailed and gained this vote. And it's written in documents that promises, it literally says they will be members of NATO. It doesn't specify how or when or under what time frame or under what conditions. But simply Georgia and Ukraine. Be, Georgia and Ukraine. And, and so... The crucial point is that as soon as that commitment was made, it was also apparent that America was not going to back it with anything. And that's what really makes it so disastrous. And that's true, I fear, about the current moment as well. And the clarity of the current moment, before the unexpected happened, and the Ukrainians put up this fierce, heroic resistance to Russia, before that happened, and it's radically unexpected, the Biden administration had, after all, been absolutely explicit about its position which is that don't talk to us about whether they'll join NATO or not. We're not going to give you, Russia, a commitment one way or another on that. That's humiliating. We won't do it. You know perfectly well we're not going to do it. Stop asking. But, but, but Biden will go to a press conference and say, as clear as could be, no American military force in Ukraine. Full stop. Right? And that basically says to Putin, if you want Ukraine, you can go get it. We're not going to stop you, but we will sanction you afterwards and you will have to face the wrath of the international community and everything else for doing it. Right? But Biden explicitly says, we're not in this. We don't have a dog in this fight to that extent. And I think they're still cleaving to that position. I mean, arms deliveries have been ramped up, but they're, you know, they're peanuts by comparison with what the Ukrainians may ultimately face if the Russians really go full bore. They don't, I don't think they really have a substantial chance of changing the outcome, but I've been surprised by the military events so far. We may be even more radically surprised. But what they basically said is if you do this, you make yourself a pariah state and we will punish you and we will punish you hard. But that is not the position of a, a hegemon that says this must stop and we will regime change you if you attempt it, right? It, it's just basically saying this is our line and if you do this, you're out of our financial system. And it happens to be the most important one in the world. So, but you're out of it and you can, you can ride this out any way you like. So that, I think, is the position that we're in right now. And, and it's because the Biden administration, again, it's been incredibly explicit, wants to face, stay focused on China. 
absolutely. I mean, that is the resolute geopolitical orientation of the United States, really, again, since Obama and the pivot and Secretary of State Clinton in 2011. Can you imagine, in Putin's mind, rethinking that paranoia or security concern that fired this whole thing? He's saying, I can't have those NATO guns in my face, get them out of there, or there's trouble. The Biden line was, they're not threatening you, and they won't. And it turns out they didn't at all. NATO didn't move. Mm -hmm. We've armed the Ukrainians in some fashion, but in fact, it wasn't a threat. Well, the two different types of threat here. So like, we have made clear we're not going to fight over Ukraine. No, but, but his abiding uneasiness about NATO on his doorstep turned out to be uh, way exaggerated. But I think you're being, you're being too literal, I think, in your understanding of what they constitute as a threat. The mere presence of NATO per se, an alliance which, after all, historically is anti-Soviet, quite un, you know, <laughs> unapologetically so, close in close proximity to Russia is, you know, for them very difficult to deal with. And um, they want to do everything possible to, to roll its influence back. And the crucial thing here is, after all, and this is the thing we so often ignore, is the autonomy of the Ukrainians. And the, the real damage done by 2008 is less the slight to Russia than the hopes that this, as it were, must engender. I mean, if you're a Ukrainian politician and the superpower of the world says you are going to join, it's a bit like, you know, bank managers and oligarchs. If the richest country in the world opens a tax haven to you, you have an obligation to go into it, right? If, you, if the richest country and the most powerful country in the world says you will join this military alliance, then surely it is the historic responsibility of any Ukrainian politician to attempt to make that real. Or you would have to humiliatingly accept, which is very difficult for anyone to do, that your sovereignty is radically and forever constrained. And for that to be spelled out is really difficult for the Ukrainians to accept. Of course, they can't once this promise is put on the table, right? I mean, John Mearsheimer has this great talk where he says that we're leading the Ukrainians down the primrose path. And, and it sounds kind of innocent, but in fact, it's incredibly dangerous. And that is the path that they have struggled to walk. And the, the, the problem is that this offer is out there. And the Russians know it and the Ukrainians know it. And regardless of what we do, one way or the other, that constitutes a fundamental instability. When the Russians say they want Ukraine neutralized, they are asking the Ukrainians to neutralize, right? And that was the idea of the Minsk agreement, restructure the Ukrainian political system so it self-blocks. So the pro-Russian counterbalances the pro-Western influence in Ukrainian politics and the thing deadlocks, just like the American constitution was designed to deadlock, right? So that interests of the of the South and the slaveholding South are fully represented and so it doesn't go anywhere in a dangerous direction. That's what the Russians want out of Ukraine, a structure like that that self-stabilizes and deadlocks. And that, of course, then is, however, visibly sovereignty constraining to the, the Ukrainians and no government since the Minsk Agreement of 2015 has has had any chance of implementing it, right? Because if you did, you would be giving up your... In the same way now, if we were offered the American Constitution in its current form, you know, would any self-respecting democratic politician choose it? No, because you're basically saying what I'd really like to do is like, you know, tie my hands behind my back, put chains around my legs and throw myself in a safe and then you can, change, you can choose the combination lock. <laughs> like, like, that's what we're asking the Ukrainians to opt for. 
and of course they won't, right? So, so it was imposed with massive force in 2015. And the tragedy of our current situation is when we talk about the negotiations, what are they going to negotiate about? Adam, to come back to this 100-year timeline, the post-war Marshall Plan pinnacle of American power is passed. The Cold War is over. The post-Cold War unipolar moment is gone. Everybody wants to know something about the new post-Ukraine world order. And of course, China is a very big player in it. Sketch that. It's clearly going to be much tenser in Europe than anyone had reckoned for. I mean, that's that's, you know, de facto a reality. I mean, the West Europeans... And more expensive too, right? Yeah, it doesn't have to be very expensive. I mean, if the Europeans organised themselves properly, their current levels of defence spending would, would already outmatch Russia. I mean, the Europeans are in this, you know, absolutely astonishing, for a historian, mind-blowing kind of situation where, I mean, they're the third or fourth largest global defence spenders and they get virtually nothing for it. I mean, nothing deployable. Like, you know, we have the spectacle of the commander of the German army on LinkedIn of all media, like, you know, proclaiming his complete inability to contribute meaningfully to the situation. For a German soldier, that is a weird, I mean, it's embarrassing, it's humiliating, as he said, and it's just freakish historically. Because in the 80s, as you would expect, the Bundeswehr, West Germany's army, was America's principal ally in the Cold War in Europe. It was ranked as the third, certainly the fourth, most competent military force. It had a peacetime strength of 450,000 men, multiple panzer divisions, you know, panzer grenadiers, the whole works. It was the ground game for the Europeans in the immediate clash with the Warsaw Pact forces that were expected over the German border, right? And it was based on, it was based on the full conscription, manhood, manhood conscription, and the Germans spent about 3% of GDP on it. And you know, that was as recently as the 1980s, with conservative governments, liberal governments, social democratic governments all stomping up for this. So, you know, that's the maximum we would need. I mean, that would put you, you know, if we had that kind of Bundeswehr, we could, you know, we could forget it. But instead, the Europeans spend like 230 billion euros and get practically nothing that makes any difference. So really, it's all about politics. It's about organising the money that we already spend efficiently. You don't need to spend more than like two, two and a half percent of GDP, which is a fraction more than they currently do. If it was organised properly in a single, compact, you know, well-organised modern force, complementary to what America provides to NATO. So America can do the aircraft carriers and the, you know, the major atomic shields, for instance. Like, then, then we would have everything we conceivably need. Like, and, and you know, because as we're seeing, Russia is <laughs> it's not a paper tiger. I think that's probably still a misestimate. But um, it really isn't that competent a conventional military force. It doesn't appear as we know so far. Come back to the political world order, including China. Maybe China aligned with Russia was the fear. Yeah. But it's certainly a multipolar place. Yeah. How does that work? I mean, we're struggling to find a good description for it, but I don't think blocks is the way this is going to go down. So I think I like the language of polarity more than I do the language of blocks in the sense that polarity captures the antagonism between centres of power rather than, as it were, shaping geometries and insisting that there's going to be an Iron Curtain, you know, and you, you, like there was classically in the Cold War, there still is in Korea, where, you know, you step across a boundary and all of a sudden you're in the different regime. I don't think that's the structure of the world. So what we're trying to figure out is how a bipolar or maybe triangular or the quad is a phrase that people use now in, in East Asia, right, in the Indo-Pacific, Stretch like simple, powerful geometries like that sit alongside or intermeshed with geometries of the economy, which are infinitely more complicated than that and truly multipolar. 
And, um, you know, that is, as it were, the real puzzle going forward. It's not for nothing that we now have, you know, not just the United Nations Security Council uh, and the United Nations General Assembly, but the G20 as a structure that's very significant in global governance. Because G20 kind of, I think ideally you'd want it to be closer to G30 because you can't really talk Africa without Nigeria in, for instance, or Ethiopia in. It's silly. So currently, you know, we, we, we don't have each. I mean, you know, so you can see what I mean. If you expanded out to G30, you would get a better idea of the scale of uh, both economic and state competence in the world, players that matter. And that structure does not any longer usefully yield to a mapping in terms of blocks. But around different issues, different groups will coalesce. Right now in East Asia, what's really striking is America can round up a powerful coalition of players for security relationships, but no dice when it comes to the economy, because A, America is handicapped, and B, on the other hand, um, none of the Asian powers are interested in an exclusive economic deal with each other in the US. It has to include China because the growth of the Chinese economy has carried it to a point now where it's just their major trading partner and the best prospect of long-term economic growth. So, which is, of course, radically different from the Cold War, where you chose your security alliance and you chose your economic alliance and the two things went together. Very few people, only the most empowered and, if you like, capable and trustworthy players like the Germans, the West Germans, were, were trusted to trade heavily across the Iron Curtain. Everyone else stayed, as it were, within their lane. Adam, too, as you know, and you teach us so much we didn't know about the way the world really works, but I'd like to ask you a, a different question, the sort of feeling question, an emotional distress that comes with this Ukraine war, and I'd love to find a way to talk about what we feel is our corrupted condition at an almost emergency level. We hunger for some renewed understanding of our human hearts, our human history, what might be redemption in a bad time. I think we've, some of us sense that we're watching an addictive system destroying itself or playing with destruction in oil, in war, in finance, in climate, in, in our strongman politics. And at some hard to define level, we're longing for the Greta Thunberg of our politics, of our warfare, of our uh, economies. And I wonder who it could be. <laughs> so, I mean... What, what does a historian make of that, that puzzlement and that, that depression? Yeah. I mean, I'll frankly admit, like, the penny drop for me on Saturday night after the big sanctions push was declared and I sat back, I was all in the weeds of the technicalities of the sanctions. And then I had this moment when I realized, wow, this is for real, this is heavy. What are the Russians going to do next? What can they possibly do next? Mm. Dot, dot, dot. And about 12, 14 hours before Putin announced or made that nuclear threat, I had already convinced myself that that was going to be the next move. And I can't remember in my adult life a more sobering moment because some, as somebody who grew up under the shadow of the Cold War in West Germany and spent a large part of their youth and childhood, not in a, I wasn't particularly affected by it, but you were just abnormal in my generation if you didn't imagine one scenario for your life being that it would end in a nuclear apocalypse, right? That was a perfectly reasonable thing to expect. And, and yeah, I think most too. people did, right? 
And to suddenly, on Saturday afternoon, after having been in what this felt like this familiar conversation about finance and central banks, and go, oh, my word, like, if we do this now, what are they going to... They're going to, aren't they? They're, you know, he is going to threaten to pull the trigger and then to wake up the following morning and for him to be doing it. And we all, you know, the, tech, the nuclear experts say it's not that grave and, you know, it's only sabre-rattling and everything else. But still, to be in the space of that reality for somebody of our... I, I don't know how the young people deal with it at all because they've never even been there. But, like, for our generations, it's, it's, I think... My parents, like, constantly regaled us with stories of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, but, I mean, to go to your other question, since you're asking at a personal level, like, I mean, I do think really quite elemental assumptions about the world are expressed in these kind of hopes and fears that you articulate so eloquently and I mean I have to say I'm a radically I mean deep radically multi-generationally secular person I don't know whether when the last time anyone in my family was baptized I mean it's probably three generations back like no bible no nothing I mean appreciation of medieval churches for sure but like and I think maybe that just means I don't feel the corruption in the same way I don't feel the saviour complex. I'm not waiting for a Joan of Arc. I'm not waiting for the children's crusade. Like, I don't think that's our condition. I'm not saying that our condition isn't hugely alarming, but, but I am wholly convinced that both in our understanding of it and in any conceivable solution to it, it is back to those mechanics of social organisation that we were talking about earlier on with regard to, like, tax havens. It's about that... I'm a prag, you know, it's a, it's much closer to say the prag, pragmatist tradition. It's just discourse. It's just social organisation. It's just human on human negotiation. This is no way negates power and hierarchy and all those things. All ferociously real, but there's nothing outside that, and and um, and that means we have to make a huge effort, which is why. It's important for me to put these correctors in this conversation, right? Because if you watch Europe right now. It's remarkable what's happening, for instance, in the energy space. People could die hard, die in the wall. Conservative politicians, pro-business to the wazoo, are saying, like, we can't do this fossil fuel thing anymore. It sucks. It's crazy. There are, there are these other ways. They're cheaper now. So they waited decades, right? They weren't early on this bandwagon. It's when they got cheap. But they are now cheap. Solar and wind is cheap as chips. That's what we should be doing. I, I wonder where was all that wisdom in Glasgow, which ended with the blah, blah, blah. Oh, well, no, this is Greta Thunberg's characterization of Glasgow, and she wants something else, and she's not going to get it, nor are the people who follow her, nor is the climate left. That isn't, any of that's not happening. We didn't hear any decisive, we're going to save this environment coming out of Glasgow. No, I no didn't. but that's anyway. realism on their part. What they did say are things like, you know, we're going to actually form a very serious working group to discuss how we decarbonize coal, so it's steel and aluminium in the North Atlantic space instead of having a trade war over CBAM. Now, that's very unglamorous. It's no one's promise of anything. But if we are going to decarbonize steel and aluminium, that's a really good place to start. India made a commitment to decarbonize. That's huge. Now, it's the Indian government. It's Modi. You may not like Modi. I don't like Modi very much. Like, and it's in the distant future. But the government of India committed itself to the decarbonisation project. That's staggering. Think about it for a second. I mean, the implications it has for them and the denial which we have in, like, the United States. And in India, they, they, you know, these were people who were full-on Hindu nationalists, and yet they are right. buying the quote-unquote Western science in on it and willing to make highly serious energy policy decisions on the base of it. All of that will have to be tested, but the commitment is there 
to the global public. Now, you can shrug and say, well, it's just the government and blah, blah, blah. But in that case, frankly, what are you waiting for? Because that is the nature of highly complex, sophisticated, power-ridden societies. This is how they're governed, by governments that do blah, blah, blah. And then the blah, blah, blah translates into actual money and actual you know, solar, solar uh, uh, fields and, and windmills and power connections and the cancellation of other projects, all of which is actually happening. Is it happening fast enough? We don't know. But that's where the actual struggle and that's where the actual argument is right now. It isn't in the denial space. That's really an American preconception. And the Thunberg, the kind of radical demand and the American obsession with denial, which is real in America because there's actually deniers mm. here, that they feed off each other. But the majority of the world right now is not in that space. It's actually trying to find large-scale constructive solutions. And if you go to rural America, I spent you know New Year in Kentucky with my in-laws, like all over Kentucky, Amazon is building giant solar farms right now. So whatever happens in Washington and whatever blah, blah, blah happens there, Amazon, I think, is committed to net neutrality by 2025. They need to buy a lot of solar power, and that is going to change the calculus for a bunch of Republican voting people who don't give a damn about the science. They just want a decent rate of return on their agricultural land. Adam Tews, this is so fascinating, and I feel I'm getting to know you and like you better all the time. At the same time, you have... Huge knowledge of the mechanics, as you say, and faith in it. Uh, I don't share all of that. I'm listening for a, a redemptive story and a openly humanistic movement. I think of Black Lives Matter, of course. I think of all kinds of people. I, I long for a churchgoer, not a dogmatically religious person of any persuasion, but someone aware of that dimension of our fallibility, our vulnerability, our, our correctability. Uh, uh, yeah, I totally, I totally, I, I, I don't, I can't say I get it in the sense that I really inhabit that, but I understand absolutely where that impulse comes from. And it, and, and, um, I wouldn't it, I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it be fantastic? <laughs> and there are, of course, profoundly inspiring people with theological, with, you know, genuinely spiritual backgrounds, especially, of course, in the United States of late in the civil rights movement, who embodied precisely that. I mean, MLK is a mind that many, at least, of modernity's problems can be thought through. His writing about history, his understanding of the dynamics of history, deeply influenced as they are by German idealist philosophy, are hugely relevant in all sorts of contexts. So live or dead, that kind of spirit, you know, is precisely, to my mind, in its intellectuality, you know, hugely inspiring. Um, and the pragmatic theology of Reinhold Niebuhr, say, who was part of Martin Luther King's education and part of ours. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Adam Tews, this is great fun and important. I haven't said how much we admire and learn from your Substack sermons and information, my God, but we enjoy this conversation enormously and are very, very grateful to you for your work and for your time with us. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Adam Tews is the author of giant books of modern history like The Deluge and Shutdown. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. The Quincy Institute works to move U.S. foreign policy away from endless war toward vigorous diplomacy. Learn more about them at quincyinst.org. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time 
for open source. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a nonprofit collective of smart nonfiction podcasts. This week, check out The Briny from Matt Frasica, a show about oceans and our connection to them. Check his two part episode, Something Fishy, from 2018, which talked about how systems designed to protect fishing stocks are having a perverse effect on fish populations. Find it at thebriny.net and tap into all of the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org.